Okay, um, so this is episode three of Inspiring Futures. My name is Ed Cotton. I am the host and the curator of the podcast that is supposed to be about all things future, uh, how we think about the future, why we do and why we don't think about the future, and importantly, um, in reference to companies and brands. Um, my guest today is Colin Nagy, who is head of strategy at Fred and Farid. Um, and I've known Colin for a while. I don't know, is it is it 15 years? Probably a solid 15 years. Solid yeah. 15 years. Yeah. Uh, knew him when he was writing music stuff back yeah. in the day. Music and culture early, and culture, early yeah. on, yeah. Um, so why don't you, Colin, give us a sort of a press rewind on the history of Colin and take us back and forward to where we how you got to where you are today yeah um i did politics and sort of journalism a lot of european studies in school and thought i was kind of headed into more of a foreign policy world and um at the same time i, I started writing like in school and then got sucked into the world of like music and cultural journalism um and so that has been like an undercurrent that is run through all the stuff I've done professionally and has actually informed a lot of it. Um, worked for some really interesting. I started out doing more, you know, strategic comms um, for a company called the Brunswick Group. Did a few things in the political realm, and then got more involved with um, the more bleeding edge of digital culture with the, barbar the Barbarian group. Um, I was there for about eight years. And you know now Fred and Farid is one of the last independent kind of creative-led agencies standing. So um, in short, it's been journalism, culture, and uh, you know trying to invent new ways to communicate or surf on interesting new platforms or channels while still respecting the big idea that everyone's looking for, I guess. Cool. So um, when someone says the future to you or future, our future, the future, what, what sort of springs to mind? Is that, is that a bad thing? Is it, is it a cliche? I mean, what, what, what do you think when you hear that? I'll be a little contrarian here, and I'm a little, I'm a little sick of hearing about the future. Um, I think we've, we've um, been fetishizing it non-stop we've been celebrating you know visionaries that are seeking to shape the future we've been kind of so dewy-eyed about the future that we've kind of taken our eye off the ball of other things um so i am optimistic in in some ways uh in terms of certain channels trends or kind of engagements um that that will help our future but i also am kind of tired of the boosterism and hype minus merit that a lot of like media is propagating like i feel like um there's a new regime at fast company and i think that they're being a little bit more rigorous but the previous regime were kind of just propping up anything with a attractive founder and like a some semblance of a story and i think that um you know the tide is starting to go out there's there's like a margin call on nonsense that i think is happening in startup world, in futurism, stuff like that. 
What 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 do you what do you, th what do you think happened here? Because yes, as you're right, the 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 bloom has gone off it because you know we I, I guess we've had a series of events that have forced people to question this you know whether it's the the the, the blood Theranos thing, whether it's the Facebook, whether it's the fire festival. I mean, there's a sort of a, a series of stories that have come out um, that pe people are sort of now going, what the hell has been going on here? Yeah, I think um, if I have to think about it, the the problem has been, a lot of it has just been in the coverage of it, you know? Like, it's so easy to write a story about the promise of something. It's so easy to write the story about an idea. It's so easy to write the story about what if everyone in the world was seamlessly connected? It's harder to write the story of the second and third order sort of consequences of, of, of what these things might bring, right? So with the obvious example that's like lurking in the room, you know, great, everyone's connected, everyone's together in ways that they haven't been before, you know, with Facebook. But when you when you talk about the algorithms, when you talk about abuse, you know, and and um, the things that are happening on Twitter, when you're talking about how the platform isn't kind of keeping up with the bad actors, when you're talking about all of the, the things that come with being this huge lever, um, you know, sometimes that that was missing from the breathless coverage of these billionaire founders and their, their visions. And I think, you know, we're seeing this with Elon Musk. It's like credit for him to be as ambitious um, as he has been with a lot of his projects. But at some point, as you said, the bloom comes off the rose and like we have to face the cold, hard reality of, of running the business that, you know, after the promise of how this is going to change the world, it's like, how many cars can we make and how, how fast, right? Um, so I think that that's the... the reality, it kicks in. Yeah, the, re the reality is kicking in here and I think it's good. And, and I'm happy that there's still journalistic outlets like the FT... And some people that are actually, you know, John Kerry, you at the at the journal, who with Theranos, you know, said, hey, this doesn't smell right. You know, this doesn't feel right. And so there are people that are doing levels of due diligence and poking and prodding. And I think that um, that's important. Now, not to be negative, Nancy, I think that there are very interesting things and credit going to people that are inventing the future. I think like some of the hydroponic farming stuff, the city farming stuff, you know, Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger, when you understand what the problem they're trying to solve is, you know, it has huge implications for, you know, humane reasons, for ecological reasons, for kind of environmental reasons. And so, you know, if, if they can invent something that changes the way the world eats, or at least portion of the world eats, that has huge echo effects and consequences in a positive way and a slightly more predictive way. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think, you know, breaking down. So, you know, there, there were a number of, um, things that called, called this, this world in a question. I, I, you know, I guess, you know, one of them was the, was the privacy thing. Um, you know, the, the Facebook and, you know, just the, the sort of the entities got so big. Um, you know the fact that Google and Facebook, you know, do dominate in the way that they do. I think ultimately, and Amazon comes along as well, and now you've got three entities, um, really super dominant in people's lives. And I think that that 
forms uh, one thing. And the other thing related to what you said is um, a bunch of people uh, wanted to create things that have very little uh, long-term value to the planet, i.e. just another dating app or a dating app with a twist or another way of delivering food or, you know, first, you know, um, rich people problems, solving rich people problems. Right? Yeah, and I think, you know, with the on-demand economy, when you saw the first commentary about it, it was like, wow, this is going to uproot the labor and how labor is allocated and blah, blah, blah. And it has seismic things. But again, when you're reducing a human's days, a human's day of work into like a spreadsheet cell, or like the kind of dehumanization that comes with some of these on-demand services, like the way Uber was treating its drivers, the way you know some of the delivery services, um, it's easy to see extrapolate a little bit into into something a little bit more dystopian. So the I'm happy that there's starting to be a little bit more reasoned commentary about this. The other point that I would make is sometimes some of these systems that we've created are getting so fractally complicated that it's like even the smartest person can't know where they're going to go. <laughs> and I think that that's the argument that detractors of machine learning and, and AI kind of have. And I think that when you look at some of the high-frequency trading and some of the stuff going on, um, it gets so complicated that even the smartest person in the world has no idea which direction it's going to end. So everything is kind of uh, fragile in ways that we, I don't think we necessarily can understand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's interesting. I was hearing, listening to somebody talk the other night um, about our, the human capacity for um, kind of, I guess, attention for reacting, for dealing coping mechanisms and inputs and stimuli and uh, you know the, 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 the sort of conclusion that we, we might have reached a point where there is we can't cope and, and and the sort of rise of the mindfulness movement and the things like that um, uh, suggesting that people are looking for, for antidotes there's, there's almost as well as a sort of high level are these people visionaries and change makers the other thing is, what are they doing to our lives? Yes, it could be from an Uber driver perspective, but also just from a, we've created, we've created channels and things that people are hooked to 24-7, and that ultimately has sort of a, a physical. It's funny, a perfect example of this is the guy near Yal who wrote this book called Hooked, and it was all about creating like addictive experiences, and this was like the early mindset of like Zynga, and some of these things. Farmville. And Farmville. And, 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 and you can see how that the, the behavioral triggers that kind of go into predatory UX have kind of manifested themselves everywhere. And now this guy has like pivoted to be like about mindfulness. And I was like, this is like the drug dealer telling me like to get off the, you know, it, like, and, the, and no one has called him out on this pivot. It's like he's the guy that like weaponized attention and weaponized UX with a lot of these tactics and now, and, 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 and now he's the guy giving TED Talks or whatever about, you know, um, about how to be more mindful. Kevin Roos at the Times did a really interesting piece about um, how he did like a phone detox. And it was really funny because, I mean, this shit was like, it was like the scene in train spotting where he's trying to get off the drugs. It's like, the, 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 this guy was like, I had to put my phone in a lockbox. <laughs> and I had like phantom, you know, and 
quintessential like New York Times technology journalist, you know, probably like pulling to refresh a little bit more than your average person, you know. But um, but the the dopamine hits and also the feeling of of trying to be always on um, was something very addictive. And I think that I've tried experiments with this, you know, only get your news through print. Uh, and I think what's kind of fun about that is, or, you know, some people just, I'll read about The Economist when that comes out on Friday, you know, because sometimes the story hasn't settled. The sediment is still kind of <laughs> flying through. Um, and But I, I do think the scariest thing for me with the world right now is how prevalent sort of skim culture is or not read at all culture, right? So being able to process a deep piece of writing, the 5,000-word New Yorker article, uh, I really question how many people are actually reading, you know, especially when it's a Times or FT investigation that's, you know, multiple pages and hugely important. I just feel like a lot of people are probably only engaging with the headline at this stage. I think, I, think, I can't remember the, one, of the, one of those news content analysis people did some kind of I, it must be a few, it must probably a few years ago but I think they found that it was kind of like it was either people were reading a lot of um, long articles or really short yeah and so there was sort of there was a long reads phenomenon that people you know would sit down and read something and I think a lot of that is just you know occasion you know I'm a and also it may be generational it may be yeah. but we raised a generation a younger generation who are they don't really care about journalism per se. They just care about the headline, and yeah. they don't really. Or they want to interact with another another medium, you know, a different format. Um, I think I use Pocket a lot because a lot of things for me are like time stretching. So I'm aware of something that triggers my interest, and then I don't have the time to read it in like the maelstrom of the day, and and I kind of have that on my read later list, right? Um, did you, did you, interestingly, did you, because I'm sort of fascinated in this whole idea of like the long tail that's sort of gone away. You know, it was a big theory, every, you know, they're all going to be these niches and, you know, everything is Spotify, everything is proving that it's, it's sort of about hits. And, um, you know, the, the, there are no niches. But then yesterday, um, yesterday or the day before, I was, I remember a fascinating story in, in ETA about WhatsApp and the Chinese population in New York and Chinese restaurants and how the Chinese restaurants are using WhatsApp aggregators to get the new Chinese immigrants into their uh, into their restaurants. Interesting. So like super niche, uh, super targeted. Was it uh, WeChat or was it WhatsApp? Uh, it was, oh, maybe it was, uh, what's, I think it was WhatsApp. Oh, interesting. Because yeah. a lot of the Chinese are just, they basically live and breathe on WeChat. Yeah. But maybe sometimes when they leave, because once you leave China, you don't get all the yeah. the goods. But yeah, I think the, the idea of maybe these niche passion points are living in places where they're not apparent to us. Yeah. So in the past, it used to be like this vibrant blogosphere, right? This vibrant, interesting blogosphere where it's like, oh, you like dub techno from the year 1998 to 99? Like there's a community for you. Um, whereas I think maybe some of these niche interests exist in like telegram groups, right? Yeah. Um, in, in things that aren't 
kind of dark pools of interest that we that aren't aren't readily apparent. I tried an experiment with um, Benjamin Palmer, my friend who started Barbarian Group, and we have a really interesting like little Telegram group of like eighty or ninety people, and we just like share links. Do you want to explain what Telegram is? Because some people sure, yeah, Telegram is a messaging platform, um, pretty secure. Um, you can get it like the encryption is pretty high if you go in a certain mode and um you know lots of users similar to uh do, do, do a, you what's invite, up. is it invite only to you we just basically we just tried it out we had a private group and we had a link and just like posted a few things and and what's very interesting is um we just it, it's it's fun because ben finds the out there weird sci-fi interesting like just the quintessential interesting palmer stuff and i'm probably a little bit more on piece but what you would expect me to be sharing but people have been writing saying like i find so much value in this it's not like scraping through my fucking news feed on facebook or even how toxic and and brutal you know twitter has gotten um where it's basically like anxiety laden and very so, so you think people so, so people are seeking sort of solace from the from the trolls and the haters out there and, and but, it's also, but also looking for something outside the filter bubble yeah it's outside the filter bubble and also what i kind of like is it's just it's a perspective that's coming from benjamin or me and if you're into that subscribe and if you don't like it leave and there's not a lot of like back and forth right it's kind of you know i i wrote how i i kind of miss the days of of like a john peel or someone where it's like okay like let's surrender to like the dj's taste and and like and um the 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 value of the curator exactly yeah. yeah and and again this is a small experiment but i think it's it it's taught me that small kind of focused private groups are still powerful and useful and um and and still valid right so the internet has taken on weird forms and like the public internet obviously so much attention is dominated by Facebook, Twitter, or things like that. The the kind of things that made the internet so meaningful to me kind of growing up, the weird, the whimsical, the kind of crazy elements of the internet seem like they've been slightly like washed away. It still does exist on Reddit and certain pockets. And I'm sure maybe I'm just not looking as deeply. But I also feel like these messaging groups are are kind of the kind of the future as well. So, so, what do you think people are um, like looking for right now? I mean, we talked about mindfulness. What are the implications of this? Do you think? I think. Uh, what are people's expectations? What do they want? You know, the the wellness and mindfulness movements are probably a necessary reaction to how crazy technology and 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 culture have become. So there's always a reaction, you know. I I'm of the mind that hospitality should be the beneficiary of the digital impersonal coldness, right? Because at some point you're like, "Hey Ed, let's go to a nice restaurant and catch up and like have a be taken care of and have an amazing environment." It's the same with hotels, right? It's like the empathy, the nurturing, the being in front of a flesh and blood person. And you know, there's a there was some commentary um, that was very valid from a couple years ago 
with someone that is now disgraced because of Me Too stuff, Louis C.K. But he said, um, you know, kids on the internet can be like savage to one another. And like, because, but if you did that to someone's face and you saw them cry, or you saw them react, that's like the natural deterrent. But like the dehumanization that comes when you, when there's, there's no, read. There's, there's, no, no there's no read. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of the macro issue with a lot of this stuff is, is like everything's become impersonal. If you look at the chaos of the dating apps, it's like, people treat each other like absolute shit because it's this like interaction reduced to a pretty distracted thing. You know what I mean? And and, and in no way would you ever act like that if you were sitting in front of someone. Right. Um, But it's like people bored in a meeting, you know, blah, blah, blah. So there's, there are these things that are like pulling us apart in, kind of scary ways and I think it's kind of inhuman and I always joke to friends that are like spending way too much time on dating apps I'm like actually probably what you should do is like go up and ask a girl out you know in like face to face you know because I I feel like no one does that anymore and actually might be more effective now or or you'll get in trouble but you know yeah Um, well (laughs) I mean the 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 thing so that is an interesting you know the the whole idea of um it has so many implications like we're talking really about physical spaces and we're talking about connections and I mean that impacts everything from retail to the hotels Um, and in the the dark magic of designing a space that someone wants to linger in. You know what I mean? Like there's something very subconscious about a space that really draws you in. Um, and whether this is a restaurant, whether this is a hotel, um, there's something about the design that goes below the level of, you know, it's sits below the iceberg, so to speak. Because like above the waterline is like the design, the math, the textiles, the lighting, blah, blah, blah. But then there's like this this patina... And this like dark magic that goes into a place that you want to linger in. In a lot of cities, that gets ruined because a lot of places are like, how do I monetize every square inch of this? You know, you sit in Balthazar in the morning and you're like, I'm literally sitting on top of someone else because they wanted to squeeze in three more tables so they could get more covers and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I, I do think that the role of... of is, that, re- is that why, like, for what was in, strikes me as interesting there is, you know... What we're seeing in New York is real estate crushing creativity. Yeah, and I mean, I was just in Bangkok, and and one of the things that stood out to me because there's a very strong creative scene in Bangkok. It's like there were just so many interesting places to sit and like watch the world go by, or sit down and have a coffee with someone, and you didn't have to like elbow someone out of the way to have the the table with a view, you know. Um, and and so it's always been like that in New York, but but the kind of fight between monetization and like elegant or inviting spaces and you know you see this it's like one of the smartest strategies the ace hotel did here was just like let any fucker that wants to sit there and work because it creates this energy of a lobby so if you come in from kenosha falls wisconsin you're like wow this is the coolest place i've ever been look at all these cool people it's annoying when I go there and I'm like, I'd like to buy a drink and spend money and I can't find a place to sit. But they got the 
atmosphere, right? It's just called the called the vibe, right? Yeah, the vibe. And but but to your point, because it's New York, it kind of also gets ruined because you can't ever find a place to sit. So, um, but I mean, interestingly, for for like what I what I think is interesting, you know, for like the last three or four years, you've seen a movement out in New York. You've seen the the chefs who are saying, "Okay, I've done my time at X place, and and now I want to set up my own shingle and go." And I'm not doing it in New York. I'm yeah, gonna, I'm going to Philly. Or, that, that's what that's what we saw with a lot of Austin until I realized I'm sounding like like a curmudgeon here, but um, you know, Austin was was interesting for that because people were like, "Okay, Beta is going to be food truck." And if this works, I'm going to get some space, and that space is not so expensive that I can't experiment or try something and fail. Same with Nashville, um, and yeah, it's like the the ability to try and push the envelope without being immediately penalized hmm. is is important. And I think um, this is the this is the enduring sort of struggle with with New York is just the um, it's always going to test you, and it's it's always going to be a pain in the ass, but it just seems like it's testing in ways that are almost becoming unsustainable. You know, it's like it's impossible to get from point A to point B. It's impossible to find a place to sit down. It's impossible, you know. So that's that's the um, strange. So, what, what thing. You, so, so just go. Let's just go to hotels for a second. Yeah. What, what do you think hotels are missing? What's the you know? I mean, I I. I put this thing on Instagram a few months ago because it just kind of blew my mind and, it, and it's not totally high-end hotels it was just the disrespect that hotels have for the brands and it was I was in downtown LA in a cab and I went past two identical buildings and one had residents in on it one had courtyard on it yeah and I was like okay they're different brands a lot of those are just asset classes right. you know what I mean yeah. it's like uh, it's it's not necessarily a hotel as much as it is a way to monetize a certain amount of square footage in a more efficient way than something else um, and I think I'm really inspired by, you know, what you're seeing at the lower end of the market right now. I was I checked out a place um, in Tokyo where they're doing almost like a freehand type thing where freehand is super high design, super thoughtful, but like, you know, probably smaller rooms at a lower price point and, and it's trying to seize back the people that they've lost to Airbnb, right? Yeah. So how do they do that? They, they did that very well. They, they did it from a design standpoint. It was like a lofted bedroom. So there's like a little sitting area and then like a loft and then, you know, a, a, a bed, but more of like a Japanese-style mattress that was like on the loft. And then, you know, small, well-designed bathroom. But also the the common spaces were, were great. And when I talked to the guy who runs the, the holding company that does a lot of these things, he basically said, our strategy here is to build something like this at a good price point for travelers. We're, gonna, we're not going to build it in like the most popular areas of that, um, of Tokyo. So this is on, they built it on the Yamanote line, probably seven or eight stops, you know, north of Shinjuku. So it's 15 minutes into the hub, very easy. But it's in like a small, more interesting neighborhood. There's still a ton of stuff to do. Um, but they can get that price point down with the right design. Um, you know, freehand here is interesting. What's freehand? Freehand is, you know, they started out as being like a little bit more of like designy hostels. But now Roman and Williams designed this one here. And it's uh, incredible art, incredible common spaces. The rooms are small but well designed. And... Um, 
the price points are reasonable. So there's a lot of innovation. Where's, where's the one on you? The, it's like Park and, or Lex in uh, 22nd, okay. just north of Bryant Park. Uh, not Bryant Park, uh, Gramercy. Gramercy Park. Yeah. Um, and I feel like Citizen M is interesting uh, because, again, the rooms are very thoughtfully designed and they've overinvested in the things that actually like touch your skin or you interact with. It's like the sheets are great. The room's small, but like you can get two suitcases underneath the um, underneath the bed. Everything just kind of works. The integration with Netflix or your personal media are great. And and their thesis is like, you know, most of the people are going to be out enjoying the town or sitting in a common area. So, and and what you're finding is these are the things that developers want to develop because labor, lower labor costs, lower kind of cost per rooms, stuff like that. But the design is really standing out. Yeah, I, mean, the, it, I mean, I think you, you know, for the hotel industry, that you know, their future was kind of transformed by an arrival of two things. I mean, firstly, TripAdvisor. Yeah. Uh, and then Airbnb. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, and these guys, you know, the, I remember, <laughs> I remember working on uh, some of the best Western uh, years ago, and. I thought it was fascinating because it kind of like explained a little bit of the franchise challenge where you sort of, they, they, you go, well, have you ever kicked anyone out of the Best Western? Well, you know, in terms of like a, a franchise holder because you didn't uphold the standards. And obviously there's no interest for them to, they want to keep the, as they say there are standards. But, yeah. But to knock a person off means less revenue because yeah. there's uh, no royalty payments. So those things are a little bit, it's a bit of a bit of sleight of hand. Um, you know, the last place you want to stay is a no-name hotel when, you're, when, you, were, when you were driving through the middle of nowhere. Um, but now with TripAdvisor, I think the, the stat was, or the data was, that the, the best rated hotel in Los Angeles was an 80 room mom and pop. Interesting, room. yeah. I think uh, the interesting thing with that is in the same way that a smart speaker is going to be the brand killer because you're like, Alexa, order me batteries instead of Alexa, order me Duracell batteries. The same thing happens with the OTAs, so like the aggregators, TripAdvisor, Booking.com. You know, you're not exactly interacting with the brand. You're inter interacting with the little snapshot of a room and like a rating and some reviews. So that is a brand killer. Um, and obviously Airbnb, but my argument, and I'm like a big fan of a hotel done well, is like you got to get that lobby right and you got to get the vibe right because like the serendipity, the magic of, and I'm, I'm talking about like at a hotel that you actually would want to spend some money to stay at, you know, not just a transactional, like I got to sleep, I got to fly tomorrow at 6 a.m. Um, because, you know, Airbnb can be cool, but then you turn up in the middle of the night to the neighborhood slightly adjacent to the cool neighborhood that you thought you were going to be in and there's no one there and it's kind of missing missing that magic i think hotels when they double down on like the hum human side of it the lobby the theater the kind of drama of a good hotel that's their competitive differentiator and that's their moat um, and that's why i will pay a little bit more money to stay at a place that has a vibe like that um, i thought it was interesting like you know because it kind of got through so, so some of these evolutions where um you had a uh, you had a, a baccarat hotel, mm. um, so you sort of saw these people come in with upper and high end luxury and slap their name on a hotel brand. 
I thought was a kind of interesting. And now more recently, it sort of makes a little bit more logical sense when I've sort of been talking to people who, I think, this conversation about Equinox. Hmm. Um, going into, not actually doing a licensing deal, but building their own. Yeah, I think background makes a lot of sense to me. And if you spend time in this one, you kind of get it. Like, it's pretty oligarch-heavy, very rich, not a lot of English, overheard in the lobby, and it's like, what's the most decadent hotel that we can stay at? And, you know, you order an espresso, and it's like $15, and, and, and served to you in uh, an espresso glass made by Baccarat, which I'm sure people are palming left and right. But the other, hi- the other hidden thing that not a lot of people know is you can sit in that room and be like, I want that. And they're like, no problem. Sign right here. It'll be on its way to you. Down to the chandelier that sits above, right? So there is this kind of retail integration and depth of brand experience that's actually like kind of unbelievable. And when you think about the markets that they're going to do that in, it's like markets where like the Tom Ford boutique's doing well. You know, it's like, hey, Doha, you know, New York to some extent, you know. So I think that there's a room for that. Bulgari is also another one. In Dubai, it does very well. In Shanghai, it does very well. Um, on the utilitarian side, Muji is executing very well with their hotel in um there's one in china and then i think the opening one in ginza in tokyo and you know it's it's just going to be what muji does well right now with equinox i i am going to hold commentary until i see it because it seems like their timing is right in terms of wellness um but the depth to which they execute on that we will see um because as we know Equinox has a nice like little brand halo, but when you really break down to it, it's not that different from other gyms other than the scented towel, the scented eucalyptus towels and like the attractiveness of the people, you know, that work out there. Um, The machines aren't different. It's actually still crowded, blah, blah, blah. So I do think that there is a big opportunity for wellness and hotels. Um, Six Senses does this remarkably well um, down to food provenance of where they get their stuff kind of helping you with sleep helping you with your sleep cycles and uh and and the the, how deep that they've actually gone down the wellness wormhole is like astounding to me when you really pull the thread they were just bought by um intercontinental hotels group and because like i think wellness for a long time was just like expensive creams at the spa but wellness touches nutrition, wellness touches meditation, quantification. Um, it touches every element. I mean, yeah. it touches what bed you sleep in, the ambient temperature of your room. I mean, you Also, be- yeah, I mean, having a good night's sleep after a red eye, you know, is very, it's like quantifiably valuable if you're like doing a deal. <laughs> or, I mean, I, I, I would hear stories from, friends doing M&A a while back where like the counterparty would be like 
scheduling the meeting so it's like ha 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 you know you're going to be at a sleep disadvantage there's a famous ad the British Airways did in the 80s so she did the British Airways in, in the 80s that they, they, they the whole thing was exactly the, the, that scenario where the, where the counterparty put, put him on an early flight but, um, but the sting was British Airways he was flying British Airways yeah. so he actually got sleep all the way through the plane yeah and, and, and arrived for the deal fresh as yeah well. it's like the the early morning BA flight yeah exactly um, so I, I think that hospitality is a very interesting lens right now as I as I mentioned it's a good counterbalance to the digital so yeah so thing. let's keep let's keep going on this way yeah. so the next big thing would be cannabis Oh, in terms of so we're going from we're going from detoxification, turning things off, mindfulness, uh, another big phenomenon out there. Yeah, is, is and a lot of people are looking at the the thing that seems to be everywhere now is uh, is like CBD integrated into like every damn thing, right? And I feel like from from an, there's there's anti-inflammatory properties. There's there's a lot of good with it when it comes to sleep, other things. I think we're really in like the early innings of that. I think I'm very interested in um, adaptogens, sort of nootropics. Um, there's a company called Four Sigmatic that just does a bunch of stuff with like legal mushrooms. So there's like mushrooms that kind of give you some energy. There's mushrooms that help you fall asleep. And it's like a powder that you mix with something else. Right. So I think that like the future of our beverages and how you know the other day a friend gave me like a bulletproof coffee but then he gave me an l-theanine pill to take with it and it actually like evened out the jaggedness so the ghee and the coconut oil in the coffee plus an l-theanine gave you this like kind of very smooth energy and like everyone knows what the jaggedness of too much caffeine feels like so i think that there's a lot of innovation that's going to come here down to the point where it's like Ed Cotton can calibrate exactly like the stack for that like morning coffee, meaning like I need an energy boost but smooth and like a little bit of a taper off at you know blah blah blah. So that personalization of like supplements I think is is very interesting and I think we're in the first innings of that. CBD will probably play into those types of things um, a little bit, and then I think the big challenge with that entire industry, particularly cannabis, is just like the destigmatization, you know, like de spicolying, you know, like yeah, man, you know, like the the kind of quintessential. Yeah, it's got, it's, got it's, it's got a jump from there to kind of being a part of a part of the wellness world. Yeah, and I have a friend that just started a cool magazine called Gossamer, and it's a it's a great magazine, and there's like a little current of, you know people that are smoking weed in it but it's not like high times you know it's not about that it's like creative people of which this is like a part of their mm -hmm. stack in terms of creating or, or relaxing or whatever but it's not like bashing you in the head with it and so i think strategically he's onto something into interesting in in the the lifestyleification and the destigmatization and then when you look at like dosis which anomaly did which is like the kind of pens like it almost looks like a clinical, like surgical thing that you'd get in the, you know, operating room, and um, and and that's another probably role to, yeah. you know, 
Yeah, so this, it's kind of like medicine. It's like an alternative. Yeah, yeah. Form of medicine. And I do, I do think, um, just to finish the thread um, with mushrooms, with some of the more psychedelic things, I think that there's a lot of very promising research with PTSD and kind of trauma victims. I mean, I've talked to people that are, you know, combat veterans that have, have used um, mushrooms or like metered MDMA. Um, and it's, it's kind of like help expunged like the black smoke from the bottom of the lungs, so to speak, like the, the trauma that you're like kind of carrying in your mm-hmm. being. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's interesting. We're like in the early stages of that, but there's been some really promising trials. Again, the destigmatization of it, because like right now a lot of these drugs are like um, associated with some sort of psychedelic bender in the jungle or, you know, some rave, you know, in the desert. Yeah. I, I think, I think, I think, you know, and, and obviously there are, there are parties that would be interested in perpetuating, continuing to perpetuate those myths. I mean, I think what's, what's, what's generally interesting, and, I would, and this was part of my conversation I with Garrett, was if, you know, wherever you look, you know, the, the, to me, you can't just um, dialogue the future as what happens in Silicon Valley. The future is what's next everywhere and everything. And it's not just a valley story. It's 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 more than that. So it's politics. It's it's it's, it's sociology. Um, it's demography. It's all those other things. And I'm happy you said that because so much of this narrative is driven out of like, you know, the west coast of the U.S. Right? But I was just in Zimbabwe. I've spent a decent amount of time in Africa. I've spent time in you know, Indonesia and in in you know Malaysia and the Philippines and like. When you get out into um, these kind of areas where people are of, of not all of the means, um, sometimes some of this stuff is like the most interesting, you know, right? Where like Africa and, and mobile and the way farmers are using it and the way peer-to-peer kind of payments were happening and almost being really empowering, um, it just skipped the desktop computer altogether, right? So like the, the uses of technology to like empower or create the future for people that aren't coming from all the money in the world is also very interesting. And sometimes yeah. those well, stories... Also, also, yeah, I mean, I think you're going to take that to a logical extreme. I mean, that, that you know, you had the Second World War, the, a big beneficiary of the Second World War were America's corporations. Yeah. Because suddenly they had export markets and yeah. they could take their products and globalize them. And what I think is interesting when you put that, when you when you take that in context, you go, well, is it actually right that the suddenly the developing world is getting a, a bad taste for some of the stuff that's mass produced stuff, and now these it's go go to the emerging markets and uh, create obesity in places like Africa or India, um, or are those or are are they gonna are those companies gonna actually Come a cropper because they're going those consumers are gonna be fast accelerating and there are gonna be alternatives available in those markets. Yeah, I, I, I and that, once the novelty is worn off. Yeah, I mean the the big soda brands are facing this, right? You know, and I think what you're seeing in the U.S. right now with Kraft and Heinz, you know, um, that was a bet from Buffett on brands that are like out of favor with how people are consuming now. It's the same thing is gonna happen in other places. A very interesting story is um, the Chinese are kind of 
returning to like a little bit more nationalism in terms of how they're buying. So it used to be cool to have the foreigners product or like the the Sony or the Apple, and now it's like buy the homegrown thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I can't remember the name of the brand, but Starbucks has got a formidable competitor now that, that in two years is uh, I think they've scaled to two and a half thousand stores. Yeah, um, and the and the pace there is 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 interesting, um, but I love what you said about you know we're kind of these old operating systems of how things are done, like people are kind of like shaking off the yoke a little bit and it's happening in Africa. You know, China has been there for so long and has done very smart infrastructure, investing this and that. A lot of it is blatant self-interest in terms of like the minerals and things like that. But, um, you know, some of these economies that are doing well, Ethiopia, Rwanda, some of the, and, and some of them are like, Okay, China. All right, you know we don't. Yeah, and 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 so some of these systems, there's there's like uprisings, there's nationalism, or there's just we want to forge our own destiny without someone kind of having their hands on the scale. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think for for for, for the big beer brands, for the big big packaged goods brands, um, the rise of localism. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's it's huge. It's a big thing, and. Uh, and what it used to be is go to emerging market with your sugary whatever and bombard it with uh, advertising. with advertising yeah. until it's just so prevalent in culture mm-hmm. and in some cases and we won't name brand names here but in some cases that these were brands that were not allowed to be sold in the US anymore <laughs> um, and, and I think people are are wising up the availability to information is better than it's ever been you know uh, and I think that that move to localism or move back to like oh we've in Argentina we've been drinking this like mate and like we're gonna keep drinking this mate not the synthetic whatever so, so, so just just to finish up one final one final question you know when when a client comes to you, or whether it's a, it's a new blank sheet of paper client, or whether it's an existing client, and, and, they, and they say we need something new, or we need to do something, we need to think about a business challenge. What, what effectively, what you know, because the future is a weird word, but let's say there's a timeline that you're thinking of. of what do you think that is? You want to do something over what period? It's not a campaign. It's 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 something to fundamentally change their business. Um, but what window do you think you're looking at? I mean, I think a you know, 10, 15 year window would be great. However, that requires the buy-in of the kind of actual leadership of the company. And um, you can get that and, and you can do these transformation projects and, and they're, they're harder to do. They're, hard, they're more political. They're harder to get buy-in. Um, I think GE was pretty good with some of their how they approach their marketing and like systems, you know, in their marketing heyday. Um, but the issue now is CMOs have such short tenures. And what we've gotten into is CM, like this kind of like mini social media star CMO scenario where people are like, I need to amass as much following and authority as possible. Because if I get booted out of this job, I need to have enough halo around me to get into another one, and so sometimes so that make me a hit. Make me a hit, or I'm not gonna think ten years in advance. I need the thing now, yeah, yeah. you know. 
Um, so that's the. But I mean, I, I, I wonder. I, I wonder with you know the, the Weight Watchers thing, the Kraft thing, um, quick hits. You know, they're not either. They are exactly as they say on the packet. They're quick hits, and and they fade away, um, or that people have not really thought them through. Yeah. You know, sometimes a quick hit without a lot of um, logistical chaos might actually be interesting and smart, you know? I, I, when Droga did the IHOB thing as opposed to IHOP and then just created like this, it was a classic like earned media hack, but it was like, oh, now we have food that's not, you know? <laughs> Now we're going after another occasion in the day or something like that. I, I, I forgot what they were trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I, you know, I think the, to me, the, the, those have become, like, I mean, the fearless girl, State Street, you know, in a world where tension is really, really hard to come by, yeah. you're looking for any way you can hack it and do it. Sure. But and is that a fundamental, is that, it, it's got people talking about State Street, but... Then you then you pull the thread and look at their board and then you you double click and you're like oh and also like the backstory on that is that was pitched to like five different clients before someone bought it you know right. like so it wasn't like custom built there um, but 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 the idea that that there are people who want quick hits there are people internally in marketing in marketing functions who want quick hits. But but they ultimately they don't fund they're not fundamentally changing the business. Yes, and, and and we sort of somehow got distracted. Either we on a false set of beliefs, or um, we've given up trying to fundamentally change the business. Well, yeah, I think going into the source code or like the soul is the most satisfying work, and I think that that's what Domino's did really well, right? They just tore up the damn like product. They rethought everything, and like that had to been the investors had to been screaming about that. You know what I mean? Um, the investment getting into like the core thing, which like probably had some pretty predictable numbers to it. Uh, that is the type of business transformation that's like truly visionary, and also takes guts and like soul to do. And again, you know, it's fast food, so I don't want to get too, like, laudatory about this, but, like, that's kind of what you're talking about. It's like they got into, like, the source code, and they, like... Well, the other, one, the other one I think that's not lauded enough is, is, is Best Buy. Yeah. Best Buy was supposed to be trampled by Amazon and uh, yeah. become another retail casualty, but the leadership there did some small stuff. And yeah. And also, like, I, I read today, like, Fortnite was, like, helping goose yeah. their... And, you know... What's interesting about Best Buy, I bought my dad a um, an Apple Watch, like the, the one you're wearing, and, you know, I just bought it there when I was down to my folks, and it was actually, like, kind of a good experience. You know, the guy was, like, very knowledgeable, and, and it was better than even, like, the one-click purchase, you know, online. So they, they did double down on, like, knowledge and, like, why you actually want to go to a store. Um, so, again, you know, some of these companies that everyone's just like writing off you know because there's some new cool upstart you know if they if they play their cards right and have the guts can still like reinvent themselves there's a there's a second act for lots of places i think that 
if you're like a Sears and you've like lost anything about what made you special at any point and you've just kind of become this uninspired blob of beige, then God save you. But but there are some places that um, probably can't have a few acts left, you know, big companies. Cool. Thank you so much for your time, Colin. Yeah. Really good talking to you. Appreciate your, your thoughts. Thanks, Ed. Thanks.